Welcome to the May 31st, 2021 edition of Digging Out. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host. We are collectively clearing the debris from the last four days, last four years, the last four centuries. So today, digging out from this debris of plastic are my two guests, Andrea Leon Grossman, California Director of Azul, and John Hosevar, Oceans Campaign Manager for Greenpeace USA. They're here to knit together the massive campaigns on the state and national levels, leading now with addressing California's contribution to plastic waste that is exported to countries with weak labor standards and few environmental protections. A very brief introduction of both of them. They both appeared on Digging Out already. Andrea Leon Grossman is the Climate Action Director of Azul, advancing environmental justice as climate change is being tackled in all sectors and on levels. And John Hosevar's work at Greenpeace is including initiatives in the Chesapeake Bay, the Bering Sea, the British Petroleum Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the UN Protection of Deep Sea Corals and other vulnerable marine life, and so many other things. John joins us today from his home in Washington, D.C., and Andrea Leon Grossman comes to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome back to Digging Out, Andrea and John. Thank you for having us. Great to be back. And we are recording this on May 28th, everybody. Well, let's start now. This month, Greenpeace, along with the Consortium of Organizational Partners, has called on California to take an important step in plastics management. Talk about what the Consortium is calling out for California, essentially not to do, John Hosevar. Yeah, thank you. We, together with about oh, 13 other organizations, reached out to the California Statewide Commission on Recycling Markets and Curbside Recycling, Oof, it's a little bit of a mouthful, to stop accepting unrecyclable plastics. And the timing was just right. They were working on developing a new list that would be, you know, this would be the list of what would be allowed for people to market as recyclable. And as you would imagine, industry was very interested in this initiative and lobbied pretty hard to get all kinds of things added to the list, even though they are not actually recyclable in most households. So um, basically together, this group of organizations pushed them to stick with the data and only include things on the list. They were actually recyclable in most households. And that whole distinction about recyclable, it takes, I mean, even chemists, PhD chemists are frustrated with the distinctions that are being made. So this is a big task of setting up this list. So can both of you speak to that difficulty? It's a big task. Well, they're, they're coming up with different kinds of plastics all the time, and they just love blending them with other materials. So that makes them even harder to recycle, if not impossible. So that's one of the issues that we're having, along with the fact that a lot of people are just what we call recyclers, meaning that they just wish everything's recycled. And they put them in the blue bin and they just think it'll just go away and uh, come back in another way or shape or form, not knowing that a lot of that stuff is just going to end up in a landfill. 
Yes, exactly. And products, you know, as you talked about, John, in your press release, that triangle that people rely on as part of their, what Andrea's talking about, the wish cycling, that triangle has been a marketing wedge in people really understanding the extent to which something's recyclable, not to mention it's going to be recycled and not landfilled, even though it is recyclable. That's another mouthful. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. And the industry, plastic industry has worked hard to convince us that recycling is the answer. They've worked to make sure that the chasing arrows recycle symbol will be on all plastic packaging, even though most types of plastic packaging have very little value and few or no markets. So in practice, it's not going to be recycled. And that has led to a lot of confusion You know, many of us are unsure whether to put something in the bin. And also many cities are encouraging people to put things in the bin that are still not going to be recycled. The problem with that is that it ends up degrading our entire recycling system because all this unrecyclable plastic waste has to be sorted and removed before we can get to the things that are actually recyclable. So I'm going to quote from my local waste management website that's kind of enabling this kind of marketing debacle on uh, the sort of more responsible resource management, you know, that's on all of us. So I'm quoting it. Chances are you recycled something today. Maybe it was a soda can or a cardboard box from an online purchase. And then I'm still quoting. Every time you choose to recycle, you are giving that item a second life to serve a new purpose and save natural resources. Now more than ever, it's important that only the right items free from contamination make their way into your recycling bin to help keep recycling and our shared planet sustainable. End of waste management quote. So. Yeah, I think appealing to our emotions is one of the ways that this industry has gotten away with just so much horrendous practices. And again, just going back to the fact that, you know, everyone sees those chasing arrows and putting things into a blue bin just makes people feel good. And it's like, I'm doing my part to combat pollution. When in fact, a lot of that blue bin ends up being landfilled. And I actually have seen in my own neighborhood, people asking for a second bin, because a lot of the stuff they're consuming is ordered online or, you know, comes with extra packaging. But the fact is that the only way to combat waste is to just cut plastic at the source. And that's where Greenpeace has been phenomenal in working at the producer responsibility arena. So I want to work with what is the consortium aiming for here, because this idea that California is the leading exporter of this plastic. And why California, John, it's contributing to 27% of the national export of non-recyclable plastics to other parts of the world. Yeah, that's right, unfortunately. I mean, we, you know, we usually think of California as a leader on environmental issues. And in this case, California is leading the country in exporting plastic waste to the global south. Not a good look. And to make matters worse, it's really in violation of international law. The Basel Agreement Amendment, essentially banning exports of plastic waste to the global south, went into effect in January. And unfortunately, U.S. exports and California exports have really not slowed. We're still shipping enormous amounts of our trash to other countries. There was just a scandal last week with 
Germany and the UK being caught shipping to Turkey. And Turkey's response was to say, okay, we're not going to accept any more. And I think that's one of the bright lights here at the end of the tunnel is that fewer and fewer countries are going to be willing to accept this stuff. So even if it takes us a little while to get California and the U.S. as a whole to stop dumping our waste on other countries, they're just not going to accept it anymore. So it's kind of a squeeze play. How do we turn off the spigot if the producers intend to continue and, and multiply by four, how much plastic is going to be introduced? And where at the other end of the squeeze play, there are places that are no longer either receiving them. There are now we're forcing it into a, an incineration and a landfilling problem. Where do we bring the consumer on to understanding the stuff isn't going away? It's here and it's multiplying. Well, I think one of the issues is that the consumer, even though he has some power, the power really li lies in the politicians and the regulators. This is a problem that needs to be addressed there. If we have regulations so that we basically stop production and push for reusables, you know, for, for single-use plastics and packaging, that's where we're going to really see cutting production at the source. One fact that we have, for instance, here in California is that the biggest export out of the port of Long Beach are plastic pellets. So it's not just that we're exporting trash, we're also exporting raw materials for plastics. And one of the issues that we have here, especially in Southern California, we're the biggest urban oil field in the nation. So the full death cycle of plastics, because it's not a life cycle, it's a death cycle, it affects people of color and low-income families disproportionately. So it's not just a landfill and the incinerator in their community, but also the oil extraction and the refineries and all kinds of stores that sell cheap plastic goods to those families. So we're poisoning, again, low-income communities of color disproportionately with this dead cycle of plastics. So let's then have both of you talk about those levers. The levers include the corporate sector, they include the legislative arena, the arena of public opinion, the arena of, as I was alluding to earlier, the municipal waste management institutions. So those are all the levers to try to reverse this whole pipeline of plastic. So which ones are you putting your energies on right now? We'll start with what John's and then uh, with what Andrea is working and putting energies in. Good news is that pretty much everyone understands that plastic is a problem and that we need to do something about it. So we're seeing people at every scale start to take action, you know, cities and towns and states, but also, you know, churches, people's workplace, their school, anywhere that there's more than a handful of us, someone is probably speaking up and starting to look for solutions. And one of the important things about that, and of course, every bit helps on its own, is that it starts to create a real patchwork regulatory climate Right. for businesses that becomes a real challenge. You know, they start to feel like, okay, maybe it would be actually better for us to accept some nationwide or even global regulation rather than to try to navigate all these differences, each town starting to handle the issue in a different way. So we are, we're seeing a lot of progress from the grassroots, and it really is starting to make a difference. 
So the Break Free of Plastics initiatives on the congressional level are those where you're putting your energies versus the patchwork of various state initiatives, like what are efforts in the California Assembly and Senate. But you're working on the federal level, John? We are primarily working on the federal and global level, but it's also important to support state and local efforts when we're able to. So we're really happy to be able to help with the California Recycling Commission. And ultimately, they voted 16 to zero to agree to a list that actually sticks to the data and didn't cave in to industry lobbying. So we're really happy with that. On the national level, we are really pushing for the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, which is the kind of comprehensive common sense approach that we really need. Thinking globally, we need the U.S. to join the rest of the world in supporting the Basel Agreement and ending exports of plastic waste to the global south. And we need the U.S. to step up and not just support, but champion a new global plastic treaty through the United Nations. And if all goes well, the UN will begin negotiating that in February of next year. Andrea? So yeah, Azul actually is working also at every level and we just released a new report that we did in conjunction with the United Nations Environmental Program about how plastic pollution affects low-income families around the world and in disadvantaged communities. We work at, at every level because we think it's important because you don't know how one policy can affect another. So we, for instance, supported a uh, policy at the LA City Council to have an opt-in type of policy when, when you order in. So if you order takeout, all the plastic that is included with your takeout, you will have to ask for it. So it's not that it's just automatically included like it has always been. And we figure that with different policies, even though they're small steps we're taking, it can lead they to- They are small steps, admittedly, yes. Right, but the bigger picture is that eventually we just want everything to be reusable. And we figure, you know, the, the smaller steps are not gonna be met with so much opposition. And we understand the opposition is gonna be growing as we take bigger steps. But we also understand that as California goes, so goes the nation. And sometimes as LA goes, so goes California. So it's one of those things that we need to see where change is happening and how we can see that change be reproduced, uh, not only uh, nationwide, but globally. So again, I think it's a matter of seeing how can we make change effectively and again, ensure that disadvantaged communities don't keep getting these sacrifice zones, whether it's extraction or refineries or how they get sell these horrible goods that poison them all the way to the waste streams. We need to stop this extractive economy that is not helping anyone. And eventually, again, we're all now drinking plastic and breathing plastic and it's raining plastic everywhere. So well, we're also we're lactating plastic. That's another news item I just read in preparation. So um, again, I think we, we just need when we say build back better after this pandemic, I think that should also include reusables. And there's a whole market around that that we can ensure that restaurants can embrace this type of thing. And also in terms of packaging, there's a way it could be done. I was born and raised in Mexico City and I know how it was done before and I know it could be done at a scale anywhere. For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Andrea Leon Grossman, 
California Climate Action Director for Azul, and John Hosovar, Oceans Campaign Manager for Greenpeace USA, speaking about the move to halt collection of unrecyclable plastics, which make the larger share of plastics produced. So I don't know if the, the carbon tax is a model that sort of raises how plastics pricing should be occurring. How do we attach the real cost? And what are you both doing with Greenpeace and Azul to try to approach, engage producers into putting in the, the real cost of plastic? How, how far are we getting to that sort of honest brokering of our consumption? I think for Greenpeace, the first step is to move away from single-use plastic as quickly as possible. So we are really looking towards significant disincentives and bans and taxes and fees on single-use plastic can be part of that. But as Andrea said, you know, the, the carrot is just as important. We want to see states and countries start to incentivize and plan for reuse. As we've been talking about, this isn't problem that we can recycle our way out of. We need to move away from this throwaway mentality that we've kind of gotten comfortable with over the past few decades and really start getting back to our values for conservation and, and reuse. And there's so much potential for companies of all sizes to take action on their own, but to level the playing field and to really get to the scale that we need, there's a huge role for public policy there. Well, we have seen a phenomenal effective campaign of shareholders holding corporations accountable in so many different arenas, including the plastics in the portfolios. Can you talk to how, I mean, like Shell and Chevron have been uh, just as recently as the this week that we're taping this interview with both of you, that there has been an amazing uh, showdown of shareholders revolting against the status quo. And as you saw, I don't see them as the signatories for the Greenpeace piece about uh, California's uh, plastics portfolio, but I want to know how both of you are dealing with that kind of momentum building in shareholder revolts around the country. It's, it's amazing. I think it's encouraging that that is happening, but I think even more needs to happen, especially at the legislative level. And as far as carbon taxing, I don't think that is something that could be done right now. Again, a lot of those fees, what we call them is paid to pollute. Because again, it's just enabling more of this type of behavior that has gotten into this hole. So I think when it comes to deposits, that's a whole different scheme. And I think that's something that we could support. And a lot of these type of containers are better if they're made out of other materials like glass. Again, growing up in Mexico, I, I remember drinking beverages out of glass soda or, you know, we glass. do that here too, Andrea. We right. used to do so, that. And I guess it was more recent in Mexico before we okay. you know, they started adopting also that this whole disposable culture. Right. Um, Good point. And, and it's also, you know, I always also get asked about what if they're biodegradable? And again, it's not about making a better disposable item because they all take resources, you know, whether, you know, you're wasting water and pesticides and all kinds of energy to transport those materials and convert it into one container so that someone can use it for 30 seconds or five minutes and throw it away. 
And a lot of these compostable materials need special facilities. And usually right. those- And the instructions are nowhere to be found. I've spent time okay. on that. It's that little and, tiny lining that makes it totally uncompostable, unrecyclable. And I still don't know the answer to my questions I've asked like a year ago. Who's going to take those containers to that special facility? No one. Well, what so, and what facility? I mean, it's, it's exactly. a big question. And, and what about the emissions from this facility? So again, I think it's really important that we roll out a reusable economy, and that should also be part of a Green New Deal. And I think there's jobs to be had in that type of economy. A lot of people forget that in this economy that we're living, the extractive economy is highly automated. So we know we can have good green jobs in a reusable economy. So John, talk about what kind of momentum you see with the shareholder challenges to the corporate status quo. The shareholder activism and the resolutions filed by As You Sow and others are starting to really get traction and that that's very encouraging. And that seems to be an example of the kind of activism that we're seeing at all levels. Corporations are fully aware that plastic pollution is a real concern to their customers. And whether that's, you know, you and I buying things in a supermarket or supermarkets buying something from Unilever and Procter and Gamble, all scales of customers are starting to push their suppliers about these issues. And that is not going unnoticed. Unfortunately, we're still seeing too much of the emphasis put on recycling, recycle content, recycling rates. And for plastic, that really just isn't going to get us very far. For the few types of plastic that do get recycled, recycling is really just a short pause on the way between fracking and being dumped or burned, or even ending up in a sea turtle stomach. It's not like we recycle bottles into bottles into bottles into bottles. Plastic is usually downcycled. So maybe you start with a bottle that ends up as a piece of carpet. And then from there, there's really nothing else you can do with it except dump it or burn it. Or it becomes a part of a textile that's gonna shed plastic products. That's right. So Andrea, I just wanted to raise, when you were talking about the carbon tax, not having a responsible component to it, but I want to make sure that we make the distinction that cap and trade is where the equity issues are a real problem, that carbon tax is trying to attach a real cost of doing business to a given product. And I didn't know if the carbon tax model has something to be applied toward the plastic consumption, plastic tax starting from the very earlier part of the value added in production of plastic. Does that make sense? It, well, um, no, I think, again, I think anything that has to be with what we call market-based solutions like carbon taxing, uh, we see those, again, still encouraging sacrifice zones and just more pay to pollute, whether it's a carbon tax type of scheme or cap and trade. Just the fact that you can just pay a little bit more to just keep this scheme going, whether it's your plastic bottle or packaging, you know, you just have a few cents. We'll never have something that is high enough to start deterring people from using those plastics. Well, maybe this is a whole different fee schedule I'm thinking that, I mean, so that the consumers understand in terms of what is considered the the environmental, social and governance criteria that that the real cost of plastic somehow that gets, that's attached to that sort of whole production stream to consumer of, of plastics. 
I think you if know, anything, we're looking uh, at it's a huge added uh, level of funds to, I to think cover what it means. If anything, I would rather take away the subsidies that we give to fossil fuels because it's about ten times or more than we give to renewable energy. Right, so and that's part of that's the cost away, of doing business, right? Right. Well, if we took those subsidies away, it would make plastics and gasoline and all kinds of dirty energy so much more expensive. That right, that's that, the goal. Right, but so and right now, unfortunately, uh, that those uh, subsidies that initially were on the table to be taken away, they're no longer on the table uh, as far as I was reading last night. So again, I think we really need to stop putting our money towards hurting communities of color, because that's what those subsidies are doing and basically hurting the climate and hurting people in other parts of the world. Because again, it's turning to a crisis where we're having more climate events around the world that are hurting the most disadvantaged. Absolutely. I understand the refrain and I know you well to know that's the largest underpinning of what's wrong with the plastic pipeline, production to consumption, to waste management. There's another arena. There's that educational arena. And I I want to bring up a specific point. We have, I mean, right at UCI, I, I interact with the engineering faculty and I interact with material engineering there. And I just see that there's a kind of insularity about what they're teaching and they're sort of connecting what kinds of materials are sort of devised that are not at all benign, like what we're talking about with plastics. And I think there's an opportunity, finally, at the university level, if not sooner, where we can make connections with the externality of the materials that they're breaking down in their engineering sort of instruction. That that's also sort of like the front end, like production is the front end of this problem we're talking about. Do you too ever think about the sort of intellectual honesty of what engineering training elites are thinking about and what their own consumption is sort of projecting and the, the optics of that? That's a mouthful too, John, sorry. (laughs) It's it's an important point. I think for most people until very recently, when you think of plastic as a problem, you probably think of sea turtles with straws up their noses or whales washing up on beaches with stomachs full of plastic bags. But increasingly, people are understanding it as an environmental justice issue, as a human health issue, as a climate issue. And that, I think, as much as anything, is what is starting to change the conversation on the production end. You know, we've had packaging engineers play a huge role in kind of maintaining the status quo. Like, it's hard for them to imagine something as different as what we need. We need really to just get rid of the entire throwaway single-use approach that has has dominated how corporations get products to customers for decades now. But there are a lot, a lot, a lot of hungry, scrappy startups, not just all over the country, but all over the world that are providing real solutions. And we're starting to see some pretty large companies form partnerships with them because they know on some level that this is the future. So is that a carrot that we can put some stock in, we can support, but that how are those hungry startups being profiled and elevated for us to know who they are and sort of to offer 
their examples as alternatives to what is the status quo? Personally, I'm not involved in the stock market, but if I was, I would investigate, you know, it could be as simple as Googling reuse companies, do a little homework and see who looks promising, but there's some money to be made, uh, you know, whether it's just your average person like us on this call, or um, I think investment banks are increasingly starting to look around and think about who is going to be able to cash in on this trend, which is absolutely coming and still building. So Andrea, is there a role that, does Azul have a chance to sort of elevate the kind of better neighbors that are coming up with sort of a back to the future sort of reuse model? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, in a lot of questions have come up about, okay, so we know how establishments like big restaurants can do reusables because they have a kitchen and they have, you know, all these equipment that they can have, but what about street vendors? And my answer is usually the same. And again, growing up in Mexico, I have, I would go to a taco stand or a torta stand and they all had reusable plates and they just had a liner that they would put on a plate where you would eat and then they would hand wash the plate and then put on your liner. So I know it's doable. It's just, you know, how would do we scale that everywhere and how do we mandate those type of policies everywhere? And, uh, and how do we create an economy around that? What if we distribute those plates and they're all standardized and create jobs doing that and ensure that you know, all the plates and all the forks and everything are sanitized correctly? So I think there's a way to have all that. And not only that, businesses can save a lot of money too. I mean, if you go to any coffee shop, especially the chains, if you go to their stock room, those are huge stock rooms with huge boxes full of plastic. And a lot of people see those rooms and they just think about convenience. I just think about environmental racism because all that stuff is going to end up in a landfill next to a low-income family or, or you know, community of color. So they could save on real estate, just having a, you know, a dishwasher and just serving everything in a reusable cup or a plate. So there's some savings that could be had and not only in terms of what you're going to acquire and how you're going to you know, do your dishes, but also real estate and other externalities in terms of not having to pay so much for medical care and even debts that are attributable to fossil fuels. So I still haven't gotten Greenpeace to coin my expression, and I, I'm, tr- I'm going to try it one more time in this interview, is that instead of, and I'm asking Azul to, to join, it's mine, I don't, I, I don't, it's, it's, I don't own it, but it, I want to hear us, instead of saying single use, I want us to talk about, use the word seconds use plastics. I like- See, it's a hard sell. Yeah, no, well, it's second well, use so that it's a little more graphic. Single use is still sanitizing this, folks. If we hear second use, it's a little more riveting, isn't it? That's it's a great point, and it is absolutely true that at the core of a lot of these problems is that we are producing trillions of items that we use for just a few seconds and throw away. And as we all understand, there is no way. It's going to an incinerator, which is going to pollute a community and far beyond. It's going to a landfill. And of all the uses for our precious planet, a landfill is not really high on the list or it's going directly into the environment. And none of these things are good for us. And when Andrea brings up persons of color and underserved communities and all of that, I understand the charter 
And I, I, what I'm interested in is that everybody has skin in this game, that we're all getting this accumulation of filaments and particles of plastics. And it's sort of to have everybody understand the externalities of plastic is why I hesitate to zero in on any one demographic, Andrea, but it's everybody that has to deal with seconds use plastics. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's going to hit everyone, but it hits. It's hitting. It's now. It's, it's hitting communities of color disproportionately. Correct. Ones who uh, get the brunt of this extractive economy and they're feeling it right now. I know uh, activists who have cancer because of where they live. And uh, again, that I don't think that's right. And we should not be having sacrifice zones just because it's convenient for some people, even though those those people, you know, are also going to be affected, but not at the same rate as other people. So this is a public health issue. This is a, an environmental racism issue and needs to be addressed right now, not, you know, a few years from now, not, you know, like, let's just do, you know, a little bit right now and then forget about it. So that's why we're involved. And that's why we know that the change needs to happen now. So let's get back together again with any initiative that you find promising. I'll be able to keep this show digging out indefinitely. It's an extra show. I have it at Radio KUCI. So I hope that we have some sorts of breakthroughs. If we have a California SB 54, is successful in the California legislature. If there is a Break Free from Plastics initiative on the national level, if the campaign internationally is now dealing with the externalities of where wastes are being shuttled off to, I hope we can meet back again sooner than later because of the need to clear this debris of plastics for sure. Let's meet again soon, I hope. That sounds great. There's a lot happening and we will have more to share very soon, I am sure. Yeah, no, I, I would love to. There's, again, like John was saying, there's a lot of stuff and moving parts that are taking place right now. So I would love to come back. Well, thank you. My guests today were Andrea Leon Grossman, California Climate Action Director for Azul and John Hosovar, Oceans Campaign Manager for Greenpeace USA. Thanks again for talking with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Talk with you next week. And thank you everyone for listening.